You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Revelation chapter 5. Let me just pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now as we turn our hearts and minds to this wonderful portion of Scripture, we pray, Lord, as we speak of the Lamb, that He would get all the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, you remember, we started Revelation chapter 5. We were in the throne room of God. We've been there for two chapters now, and we will finish chapter 5 today. We've begun to look at the importance of the seven-sealed scroll. Do you remember the scene shifted from the throne to the scroll? And we talked about what that was. I went through all of the Old Testament land redemption laws that I know you were all very keen and better for, the, better for it, for understanding them now. But my argument was basically that the scroll is the title deed to the earth. It was the purchase deed that Christ purchased when he died on the cross as the kinsman redeemer of mankind all those years ago. That means he is the only relative who has the right to take back what he purchased, and that is the land, the earth, and all that is in it. This is what we saw last week. We talked about how the earth is currently still under what we called tenant possession of Satan. It was given to him by man when we disobeyed God, and that is what Christ died to take back in one sense, obviously all of us as well in that, the redemption. But the, sc- the scroll serves really as the final eviction notice of Satan and those who, who would usurp his kingdom. The true ruler, the landlord, you could say, the owner, the king, when he comes, this is what he will do. We looked at how John wept when he looked at the scroll and he saw, is there anyone worthy to open that scroll? No one could bring this reign of death to an end. No one could fulfill the hopes of all the prophets from the scriptures. And then the elder came up to him, these 24 elders, and told him to stop weeping. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. That was the verse we ended on last time. So he is the one who paid the redemption price. He was the one who had the right. He is the one who is worthy and has the power to evict those in his, on his territory. And now we'll look at the rest of this chapter. We're going to see much more, de- much more about Jesus Christ. So let's pick it up in verse 6. It says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So now we move on. We've looked at the scroll. We're looking at something else, though. We saw the dazzling throne. Do you remember the descriptions of almost like jewels and rainbows coming out, a glass sea, all these things that are very hard to understand, the radiant light from the throne. We saw the four living creatures, these wonderful angelic beings. We saw the 24 elders, which I argued was redeemed, the redeemed church on their own thrones with their own crowns. We saw the scroll, and we saw him introduced as the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's a picture of Aslan, by the way. If if you're wondering, that is why C.S. Lewis used a lion there, because Aslan is his Christ character in those novels. It's a wonderful story if you read it in that light. And now we're going to look at something else. And this is probably the most pivotal moment in this whole chapter. I'm sure 
when John had the announcement of the elder that the lion of the tribe of Judah is the one who can open the scroll, he expect, we expect the next thing to be something to do with the lion. However, it's not. You see, the lion speaks of his sovereign majesty, his power, his government, his right to judge, and his second coming, and his kingdom that will come. That is not really what we see here. We see a lamb. A lamb as it has been slain, a meek, humble, in many ways helpless picture of a lamb. And we need to understand the imagery of the lamb in the Bible because it is the lion and the lamb that we are seeing here. So we're going to spend some time looking at that. The lamb speaks of his first coming. Lamb speaks of sacrifice. As the lamb, he was judged for the sins of the world. So the lamb speaks of his grace, God's grace, that he died in our place. You see this lion who is about to come and judge the world, this glorious majestic king, he has been to this earth before. He came as the lamb 2,000 years ago. And when he came as that lamb, he came to purchase redemption and earn the right to go forth as the lion. You, you must understand how those two things are linked. This was the background that we looked at last week. As the lion, he can only do what he can do because he came as the lamb once before. And this is a wonderful picture of the character of God through the Bible. Grace and mercy always precede judgment. The lamb always comes before the lion. That is the way God works. And this is really the theme of the New Testament. He wins his victory through sacrifice. Is that not what he did on the cross? Was that, the great, that was the greatest victory of all victories, the cross, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through that, he disarmed Satan and he defeated death. And thus, he made the way clear for himself to come back as the lion. We must understand this. All of these things that we're going to be studying in Revelation, his kingly rule, the power, his crown, his person, it all lies in the fact that he came as the lamb to redeem mankind and the earth to himself. These two things must go together. He could not take his place on the throne. He could not open the scroll, take possession, evict Satan and those usurpers unless he had first come as that redeemer, that lamb, to die and sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. This was where the battle was won. This is why throughout Christ's ministry we see that model that he exalts the humble. The humble being those who voluntarily place themselves below others they are the ones who will be exalted in the future because that is what Christ did. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and will place him far above the heavens, above all names. This is what we're studying in Revelation. But it was the Lamb of God who did this. So I want to just go a little bit into the, the imagery of the Lamb because this is a theme that we find all through Scripture. Isaiah chapter 53 considered the Holy of Holies, they call it, of the Old Testament. Revelation chapter 5 is considered the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. Isaiah 53, this is Isaiah the prophet. He was writing about the coming one, the coming Messiah, who would be on the earth. This was long before Jesus, anyone knew about Jesus. Remember this, long before that. He said this, He was a despised and forsaken man of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and yet we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Listen. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep, 
have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of his people to whom the stroke was due. This is written 500 years before Jesus Christ ever existed, describing the Messiah who will come like a lamb, the innocent one who will stand in the place of the guilty, the sins of the nations, it says there, will be put upon him, he will bear them, he will be pierced through for our sins. This is Jesus, there is no other person who can fulfill this prophecy. This is how we know that he is the one, he is the Lamb of God. This is just one of the places we find the Lamb of God in the Bible. But let's go a little deeper into this. In the Jewish mindset, you speak of the Lamb of God, what does that evoke in your mind? If you're a biblical Jew, if you understand Judaism, even today probably, the Feast of Passover. This is where lambs were the focal point of this entire feast, the Feast of Passover. And this is, I believe, the connection that John is making in this text. The actual word that we've just read in Revelation is not the, the common word for a lamb. It's a, it's a slightly different word that is actually referring to a little lamb, like a baby lamb, if you could imagine that. You know when you drive past and you see the, the little lambs, you look at them and it's, oh, you know, they're very cute. This is the, this is the idea of the word that is being given here a little lamb like that. So we have the Passover, we have the Exodus. Remember, those two things are linked in our history. We have the lamb, and now we have the book of Revelation. All of these things are connected. Even though they're separated by thousands of years, we have them in the Bible connected, these themes. Let's look at this. I want to give us a brief outline so that we can get this. Do you remember when the Israelites were in Egypt? So we're going back before, long before Christ. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And God raised up a man called Moses, this prophet Moses, to speak to Pharaoh to ask for their relief. You've probably seen the plays at some point, the musicals at some point. Let my people go is the famous expression. We all know that. It's in our culture. But this is what happened here. And Pharaoh did not recognize the authority of the God of Israel, and thus he did not recognize Moses' authority. Instead, he was an Egyptian. He trusted in the pantheon of Egyptian gods. And there's a, there's a line at the beginning of these exchanges, Exodus 5, verse 2, and this is key. Pharaoh says this to Moses. He says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I'm not letting you go. Who is this Lord? And it's L-O-R-D, the capital personal name of God. He's saying, Who is the God of Israel? I don't know him. I'm not obeying him. That's, that's the attitude of Pharaoh. And soon, by a, then a... a ensuing series of dramatic judgments on Pharaoh and, and Egypt, we call them the Ten Plagues, Pharaoh found out who the God of Israel was. You see, that's the story. Have that in your mind. Jump to Revelation. We are now looking again at a Moses-type character. In fact, the Bible even says that a prophet like unto Moses will arise, and that is a prophecy of the Messiah. It's a, it's a term of speaking about Jesus. In his prophetic nature, he was linked with Moses. He once again will challenge a world ruler who is opposing him and he will once again unleash a series of plagues that we call on the earth. We are going to study them in the coming weeks. It's very similar to what we see happening in Revelation. In fact, it's exactly what we see happening in Revelation in many ways. He will do this and he will make, everyone will know again who he is. 
just like the, Israelite, uh, the Egyptians knew. But back to Egypt. So the ten plagues follow this announcement. If you don't know, these ten plagues are not just random plagues, they are all very specifically directed towards the gods of Egypt at this time. They worship the Nile. They, they worship All these different creatures, if you learn about their gods, are related to what these plagues were, each time God showing that he had power over these supposed gods that they worshipped. The tenth plague was the death of the firstborn, all firstborn in the land of Egypt. And it was all Egyptian and Israelite. They were still there as slaves at this time. All of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. There was no distinction made there. And this again is one of those things. Pharaoh was worshipped as a god in Egyptian culture. He was the son of Ra. And his firstborn son would also be considered divine to be the son of Ra. And that's how the chain went. So you can imagine that God takes issue with that. And that's what he's getting at here. He wants his people to be let go so that the real Messiah could come to the earth to save mankind. And then we get to what I want to focus on here. So that's the situation you have. Sounds very weird to us, it's foreign, but this is what we had. The way that God ordained to make sure that that judgment on the firstborn would not affect you was this. This was the thing. You had to take an unblemished lamb, you had to kill it, and you had to put the blood on the door of your house. So I did have pictures of this actually for you. There, there you go. A little bit like that. You would take an unblemished lamb, kill it, and you would put the blood on the doorposts of your house, and thus whoever was in your, your house, whoever was under the blood of this lamb, would not come under the penalty of death. This was what happened, and this ultimately... And God would pass over, it says in the text. This is why we have what's called the Feast of Passover. And interestingly, it, it was said to be a memorial for all generations. Passover is still celebrated all around the world today, even if most of the people celebrating it have not seen Jesus as the Lamb of God there. But I, hopefully we can see the connections that are being made. So notice, it was the blood of the Passover Lamb applied in accordance with God's Word that saved them from death and not only that, immediately after this, the exodus happened. And they were redeemed out of Egypt. They were redeemed from bondage. They were redeemed from slavery. That's how this chain goes. And this is the backdrop for our own salvation experience. In the New Testament, you find all of the apostles and prophets writing with exodus language when they teach about our salvation. And hopefully you can see the parallels. In the book of Romans... The Apostle Paul says that to be in sin, to be in an unbelief, if you don't believe in Jesus, it says that you are a slave to sin, that you are in bondage to sin. Those two words, slavery and bondage, bring us back to Exodus. That's the same language there. He does that a few times. It's also said that in the Old Testament, God describes the exodus of the Jewish people out of Egypt and through the Passover and through the, the sea. It says that they have been redeemed from the house of slavery. That's the language that is used in the New Testament. And thus we can see very easily this happened by the Passover lamb by applying, applying the blood on your doorstep. And this is why in the New Testament you have verses like this, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. It says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile way of life, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, the spotless blood of Christ. You see, Jesus was the Passover lamb for all mankind. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5-7 that Christ 
our Passover is sacrifice. He makes that connection absolutely clear. And in the Gospel of John, remind you, John, the Gospel of John is written by the same person who wrote Revelation. So he has this lamb theme. He has John the Baptist doing the baptizing. He looks up and he sees Jesus coming. And what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jewish people would have understood the Pascal imagery that is going on here. Now, I said that this was a little lamb. This was the word for a little lamb. There's an unusual detail that's being got at here that's quite fascinating in many ways. Now, the descriptions that God gave the Israelites is that they were to take this lamb on the 10th of Nisan. Nisan's the month, roughly sort of March, April time. They were to take it on the 10th. They were to bring this little lamb into their house for four days before they would sacrifice it. So the idea was, it's a very cute baby, tiny little lamb. They would bring it, every household had to bring it into their house. The children would pray for it. They had to feed it. It would be cute running around. You could imagine they'd grow affection for it. You could just imagine, like when you get a new puppy in the house, I'd imagine it would be like at this sort of time. They'd grow very attached to it, fond of it, and then they had to sacrifice it. Now, that's jarring, isn't it? It makes you think that's cruel. Why would you do that? And that is precisely the point. Because this is typifying for us, this, this is meant to illustrate for us the love that God had for his son and what it cost him to give his son for us. He loved his son. This is why giving the Lamb of God, his son, Jesus, for us is something we don't speak of lightly. That's why this chapter in the New Testament, we're going to see all the praise and honour and glory, riches and power go to this Lamb who gave himself. It was a dramatic thing. You were supposed to feel the jarring, the, the grief here that is going on. It was meant to be a hard, dramatic moment, a graphic illustration of what was going to happen many years to come when the true Lamb of God came into this world. This is what, when you read John 3.16, that verse that everyone knows, this is the background for that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And when it says he gave, think of what he means. He gave him to come to the cross and die as the Passover lamb. For all of us, in full agreement with the son in his own person, they did that because they loved mankind. And this is it. It's supposed to be like that. So let's look, let's look at this verse in Revelation now, a little detail. That's the background. I just You needed that in your head. It says, And I saw between the throne... With the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, seven ho- having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The lamb standing. Now this is a dramatic moment. Please don't miss this. For a millennia, the lamb has been seated at the right hand of God the Father. The lamb was resurrected, the lamb ascended to heaven, and he took his place on the throne on the right hand of the Father, and he sat and there he made intercession for us, there he remains. But what we're seeing now is that moment where the lamb stands to his feet. It's a very dramatic moment. If, you were, if this was a movie, this would be when the, the fantastic musical score starts picking up, you know, and the emotion and the t- intensity is building up. This is what's happening here. He stands to his feet. The king rises from his throne to action. The time of waiting is coming to an end. And he was waiting until he got the okay to go and take back the earth that he purchased on the cross all those years ago. That is exactly what's happening here. It says, a lamb as if slain. And this puts the death of Christ at the very centre of everything. And it really is the very centre of everything in the universe. Your view on the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, the ministry of Christ, will determine your entire destiny and future. 
It really is at the centre of everything. The atoning death of Jesus as the Lamb of God is what defeated Satan. Removed that power of death, defeated death itself, and that's why we praise the Lord for that. It's not an afterthought in response to some plan that God went wrong. This was planned before the foundation of the earth. This was the plan all along, which is why we find the Lamb of God a theme from Genesis to Revelation. It's pictured for us in the first book of the Bible. We've looked at Exodus. Let's go back in time. Genesis 22. Through this event, you remember it. Again, it's a difficult event for us to understand. When Abraham was told to offer his son, Isaac, you remember this, and we start thinking, human sacrifice, what are we talking about here? You have to look at it now through the eyes of Christ, through the eyes of what we're talking about, and you'll understand it. In Genesis chapter 22, there's a very unusual verse that begins this whole section. Abraham was told to offer his son Isaac, and the Lord phrased it like this, listen, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. However, in reality, Isaac was not his only son, he had Ishmael. So God is making, this should alert us to the fact something unusual is going on here, your only son, where do we know that phrase from? That's a New Testament phrase that speaks of Jesus, isn't it? God's one and only son. So this is making a play here that we see. This is an event that shocks us, yet we don't grasp it unless we see it through the eyes of Christ. It is there to provide us a detailed picture and point us towards the cross of Christ. See, the cross is where another father would offer his own son. And if you don't know, this event with Abraham and Isaac happened on the very same mountain that 2,000 years later God did offer his own son. It's the exact same place in Israel that this happened. So you see the connection that's forming here. And listen to the way it's phrased in the Bible. On the way up, Isaac asked Abraham, on the way up to Mount Moriah, Genesis 22, verse 8, he asked, where's the lamb? He's obviously confused what's going on. Where's the lamb? And Abraham said this, and it's phrased very specifically, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. You see what's going on here. This is the hill that Christ was crucified on 2,000 years later, and God did provide for himself the lamb, the pierced lamb, the one we're reading about now in Revelation, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, the one who is now standing to his feet in the throne room of God, preparing to transition to come back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the one to whom, whom every eye will see one day, the one to whom every knee will bow. This is the lamb that was provided by the Lord. It implies, though, that this little phrase, as he was slain, that even in his resurrected glory, in the throne room of God right now, he still bears the marks of his crucifixion. There is some identifying feature on this vision that makes him known this was the lamb that was killed. And you could say that they are forever a testimony, whatever these scars are, whatever they are really, they are an act of testimony to his love for us. His act of sacrifice as that Passover lamb, forever enshrined on his person to testify to his death, his resurrection, and to show us his identity as the only redeemer of mankind, the lamb who purchased redemption, that right of redemption that we looked at last week, to take back the earth. Thus, he is the only one worthy to open the scroll. That's what this whole thing is about. Who has the right to open that title deed to the earth? No one except the one who purchased it. That's what the lamb of God did 2,000 years ago. So the last, this slain lamb stands, seven horns and seven eyes. 
Now, this is unusual language again. We've looked at this a few times. Horns refers generally to power and government in the Bible, and the eyes here are described as being representative of the Spirit of God. I guess it's referring to the omniscience of God, that he, he knows all and sees all at this point. The Lamb is no longer interceding at the right hand of the Father. He has now been exalted. His kingdom is everlasting. He's all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And this, I believe, is a very good lesson for us today. Christ is no longer that baby in a manger, that comfortable imagery that people like to think of him. He's no longer suspended upon a cross. Those necklaces that people wear with Christ on the cross, theologically, is wrong. That's not where he is today. He is in the throne room of God, and he is on the verge of standing, I would say. And we're reading about what that is going to happen today. And that is why he has the authority to act. May the earth tremble when that happens just like it trembled when God came down the mountain at Sinai after the Exodus. When God comes down now again, in Revelation we are literally going to see the earth will tremble. It will be shaken and nothing will remain except that is which is fit for his kingdom, that which is inside the house that has the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. That's the imagery you see that's going on here. Verse 7, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He comes now. He stands, he comes and takes the scroll. And when, and when he has, the whole throne room falls to the floor. And I love this. It's customary today, uh, it always has been throughout history pretty much, when royalty enters the room, a king or a queen enters the room, everyone else must stand at the same time. We understand that sort of, it's, it's, and you're not allowed to sit down until the, royal, the king or queen sits down. That's etiquette for when you meet our, our queen and it is for most royals. And the, the principle here that we see in Revelation is kind of the same, but it's different. You see, when the lamb stands and takes the book, no one else stands everyone else falls. They go as low as they possibly can as the king who is exalted goes, stands to his feet. There's just something slightly different about that imagery there, but it is wonderful. You get a glimpse of just who this God is we're talking about, about who Jesus Christ is as the Lamb of God. Now, whilst all this is happening, the earth below, sleeping, unaware, really, of what is about to befall them, unaware of what is happening when the, when the Lamb is taking this scroll and what the opening of its seals will mean for mankind. He is now moving to begin the restoration of all things. You could say this is probably the most pivotal moment in all history since the crucifixion, this act here of taking the scroll and opening the seal. You see, for eons, for millennia, really, death, murder, pestilence, injustice has been the norm on this earth. God has waited patiently that all who are called would come to him, that anyone who would repent, that offer, we call this the age of grace, and that's why. But now with the taking of the scroll, it's indicating this age is over. Something very different is about to begin. The son has begun to take back the nations as in his inheritance, which comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. The son will make the, the world, the enemies, a footstool. He is about to come and dispossess them. The world that he purchased at the cross shall soon be his. This is, the lion, this is the lamb becoming a lion. It also said he had golden bowls 
full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. We see that imagery of incense. We, we looked at that in the early chapters of this book, typifying the prayers of the saints rising to the throne room of God. And here we see, I think they're mentioned here because we see the fulfillment of so many prayers that has, as of yet, remained unfulfilled. Probably, who's ever prayed the Lord's Prayer in here? Prayed it and meant it, not just recited it at school. Most of us would probably have put our hands up for that. This is what it's talking about. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does it then say? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is not happening right now. This is what we're studying. This is when that is going to start happening, when the kingdom really does come and heaven does come down to earth. That's what it is. Now this is, as I said, when the dramatic music would start playing and that's exactly what we see happening now in the throne room of God. The dramatic music does start playing. The harps start playing, the heavenly hosts begin to break out in praise and worship as this lamb takes the scroll. A new song is sung. Just as Moses and the Israelites, if you look at Exodus chapter 15, after all of this with the Passover lamb, the Exodus, the coming out of Egypt, they sang a song. It's called the Song of Moses, the Song of Redemption, some people call it, but it is called the, the Song of Moses in the Scripture. And now, again, paralleling that, after all this has happened, we see a new song being sung in heaven. It's called the Song of the Redeemed. Let's read it. Worthy are you to take the book to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased with God, purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth forever. I know that's the third time I've read it, but I'm emphasizing it for you. Worthy is Christ and Christ alone to break the seals. That's, that's been our theme of these two chapters, really. The term purchased there. That is the same word that you'll find throughout the New Testament that talks about the redemption of mankind, purchasing them from the slave market of sin. That's the way it was used. It's talking about the redemption. And then it says, by your blood. And this is the blood that makes atonement. And again, we often get funny when we think about blood, especially in the context of sacrifice. But this is referring to the, the, part, the blood from the Passover lamb. This is why the lamb was sacrificed. Now remember, to agrarian cultures like the Middle East was at this time, they wouldn't have been phased by this at all, to be frank. Uh, blood would have been, they, they knew, they understood that the life was in the blood. That's a very biblical principle. If you want to think about this, what it's basically saying when it says there's no atonement, it, it means life. Because when you pour out blood, you pour out life. That's the principle there that's going on here. So if there is no blood, there is no salvation because it means no life has been substituted for us. The whole reason that we can stand innocent in front of a holy God, given the righteousness of Christ, is because he died in our place. Death is what we deserved. Death is what Christ took for us. And he gave us righteousness that we could stand before God. This was why it is only by the blood of Christ. If you find a Christianity that does not speak of the blood of Christ in relation to the cross, the lamb, the atonement, it is not true Christianity. It will not save you. It is only the blood that saves you. This is why, as that verse I read earlier, Peter calls it the precious blood of Christ. It is precious to him because it is by that that he purchased his salvation, that he was made to be Christ's. Of every tribe, tongue, and nation, it says. This is the scope of God's redemptive work. It was global, consisted of all people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, I need you to stay with me here because some people, this won't mean much, but there's a few who might pick up on it. If you're reading a King James Bible, you may notice there's a slight textual difference in this song of the redeemed. In verse 9 it says, you were, you've purchased us 
It speaks about them, the redemption being in the first person. And this is actually quite a complex issue. I, I don't want to go through all of it for you. Basically, the difference is, when I read it, it says you purchase them. In the King James, it'll say us. So it's first person versus third, third person, basically, that you see going on there. And there are a few different manuscripts that have different readings in there. The actual confusion is that what most people assume is that this is actually an, an antiphonal song that's going on here. Like we see, we did this when we studied the Psalms. One group is singing one line, the next group is singing the next line. So one group is singing about the other group and one group is singing something that they can say. It's very hard to get that when you just read the text, but that's often how songs would happen in worship. And therefore, because there is a third person when one group is singing, the majority of, of translators probably assumed, well, the first bit should, should also be plural, and that's probably why we find that in a lot of manuscripts. For me, though, people make a big issue of it because it relates to the identity of the 24 elders. It's a good argument that if they are singing that they were redeemed, they're definitely the church. Um, and in that sense, it's fine. But I don't really like to make an issue of it because for me, I think it can still perfectly be the church. I made a strong argument, I believe, that the 24 elders are the church from the text alone. And I think it's totally fine to have a representative speaking about the body in a third-person context. We, we see that all the time. In fact, when Moses came out of Israel and he sung the Song of the Redeemed, he did it in the third person. So in many ways, it's exactly the same of what is going on there. So it's not a big issue. Don't worry about it. Let's move on. The redeemed, and they shall reign upon the earth. Look how it ends. And they shall reign upon the earth. Now that's a very strong argument for what we would call the premillennial interpretation of Scripture. That's what we hold here, that's what we teach, and that is that Christ will come back and set up his kingdom on the earth. There are some groups that believe this kingdom is completely spiritual in nature. It is kind of the church, vaguely, and then we'll end up in this sort of heavenly sphere that no one can quite define. I believe this is not what the Bible teaches. It's very clear that the, the Lion of the tribe of Judah is coming to earth, where he will dispossess the usurpers, he purchased this earth, he will renew, redeem it, renew it, restore it, and that is where he will set up his kingdom, and we will be there with him, and this is what this verse seems to imply. Let's look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. What we see here now is really an ever-increasing crescendo of praise in the heavenly places. It started with the song of the redeemed, and now we add multitudes, myriads upon myriads, countless numbers, if you can imagine what that means, millions upon millions of angels start to join this chorus of praise. And what are they singing again? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. If you can imagine the sound of that, you can't really, so, so many millions. If you've ever heard, been at a concert and you've heard thousands of people sing, it's impressive, isn't it? Imagine this number, this chorus here, praising God. It says, power, honour and glory to him. And riches, wisdom and might and honour. Power, honour and glory. Now you might notice that earlier on in chapter 4, those three attributes were prescribed as being for the Father. And now we see them being ascribed to the Son. This is a very strong proof that the Christian conception of God, that Jesus Christ is God, is true, because they are both accepting worship and praise here. Let's look at verse 13. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, 
to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and dominion forever and ever. So again here, started with the 24 elders and the, and the living creatures, got spread out to the entire angelic hosts, and now we see it being widened again to every created thing in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every created thing. It is basically saying everything that is separate from the Creator is a created thing. At some point, they will again worship both the Father and the Son. And this is again another clear statement of Jesus' divinity. Contrast this with the night of the crucifixion, that night that that Passover lamb was slain. And if you don't know, the date of the crucifixion, 2,000 years ago, was on Passover. It was actually, he was crucified on the cross at the same time that the Passover lambs were being crucified in the temple. This is the crucifixion. That was the biggest act of rebellion, wasn't it? Where all of creation got together and they rebelled against their creator to the point that they spat on him, scourged him, whipped him. Ultimately, they crucified him and they killed him so that they could go their own way. If there's one lesson from the Bible, it's that the way of man is death without the Lord. This is why Jesus, when he came, he said, I am the way, the way of truth and of life. But here we see him getting his due. For most of history, mankind has not not acknowledged that, but now he gets full acclaim and acknowledgement by every created thing. Everything acknowledges that his glory and his kingdom will be everlasting. And at this point, I would say you should be asking yourself, do you know the Lamb of God? Are you able to join in the chorus of the redeemed, the song of the redeemed? One day, everyone will have to sing a song. Everyone will acknowledge that Christ is the King. However, for those that do not accept him, it will be a very different history. We'll see this as we go through this book. I would ask you, if not, why not? The Lion of Judah bids you today to come to him, to confess your sins, to accept what he purchased for you, that you would be forgiven and spend eternity in his kingdom. That is what you do. He will forgive you, and then you can join in the eternal chorus of the redeemed. Worthy are you, Lord. You purchased us out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Let's look at that last verse. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. To all this, everything in that throne room that we've just seen, this dramatic scene, this ever-widening crescendo of praise of the worthy is the lamb that was slain, all that they can do is just say, Amen. It is done. It is sure. Let it be so. Basically, that's what that word means. The elders are again now seen prostrating themselves in worship before the Lamb as he stands and he takes that scroll. This is probably one of the greatest scenes in the entire Bible. We really have nothing like it. And what transpires after this is the wrapping up of history. We move into a different era. And as we're going to see some of the clues that tell us when this era will start in Revelation, we're going to go through and it will become obvious those times may not be too far away. Now, I don't want us to listen and look into a scene like this and walk away untouched. You should walk away a changed person after hearing something like this. It always makes me think of Jacob when he was wrestling with the Lord and the Lord touched him and for the rest of his life he had a hip problem. We should walk away with a problem. It should be a problem for us when we walk away like this. A problem for those of us who don't know the Lord, a problem for those of us who know people who don't know the Lord, a problem for those of us who do know him but are not living in accordance with his word. These are all some of the implications of this. And it should be a reason for praise for all of us. The one we worship is the king. He is worthy. He is the lamb that was slain. There is no one greater, no one higher, no one else who can usurp his throne. And one day his rule will cover the entire earth. That is the king that we worship. 
This is Jesus Christ. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember, Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus. We've seen him in just this chapter alone as the Lion of Judah, as the Root of David. That means he's the coming king. That means he's the Davidic king that will rule from Jerusalem. He's the kinsman redeemer, the relative of mankind who redeemed the earth back to himself. He is the only one worthy to remove those who are taking possession of his earth unlawfully. He is the one that is worthy to break the scrolls, yet at the same time he is also that lamb that was slain, that Passover sacrifice, the one who accomplished our redemption because he loved us. We will also be the one praising him for all eternity. He receives worship, power, glory and honour from every created thing, including, along with the Father really, for all eternity. So what else can we really do except agree with the four living creatures and the elders? We say amen and we worship him. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.